Hello everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange we like to start by asking, what are you thinking? And this week we are thinking and chatting with the incredible, the unstoppable Eve. Um, Eve is a veterinary surgeon but she, as we always say, is so much more than that. Not only has she done a PhD but she set set up her own company. Um, And honestly I think when I was interviewing her I felt like I was maybe on an episode of Dragon's Den. She really is an absolute inspiration and just shows you the limitless potential uh, for the things that we can do with the veterinary qualification. So I really hope you enjoy that discussion. I'm thrilled to be joined for the clinical segment by the incredible Gemma from Protexin. We are incredibly thankful for Protexin for their support of, of this podcast episode. And in our clinical segment, we're going to be continuing our liver theme, um, a bit more of a deep dive into the treatment of liver disease. So I really, really hope you join us for that too. Right, um, Eve, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. I am... Um, Full disclosure, take two. <laughs> Sometimes it happens, but we're okay. Um, I wonder if you would mind uh, starting just by um, introducing yourself to the listeners and a little bit about your veterinary background, if you don't mind. Yes, of course. So um, I am a vet and I qualify from Edinburgh University back in 2011. So I was, I'm a little bit older than a 2011 um, standard graduate because I I worked before I went to vet school. And so after I qualified, I worked in Scotland, mainly in practice, um, did a CERT AVP in equine medicine, which I just really enjoyed. I did that, you know, alongside work. So I really enjoyed that, loved studying. And so I ended up moving into more of a research vibe, did a, a PhD in immunology at Glasgow, and then I got a job with SRUC, which is Scotland Rural College, as a clinical pathologist. So that was kind of my vet career. And I did all the usual, that zigzag path of, Mm -hmm. um, you know, moving our way through different species. I did a bit of smallies and equine and farm and emergency work and locum work. And yeah, so it was was a bit bit sort of um, of a patchwork quilt, really. There wasn't a plan. I thought there was a plan, but there wasn't really a plan. And now I've moved into um, a kind of entrepreneurial side of things. So again, a completely different um, kind of career than I expected. I think it's really interesting because, um, I mean, the zigzag, the squiggly thing we talk about, and I think it's really true. And But what's really fascinating, I think, about your career is that it's it's really squiggled hasn't it I mean like you know the you know but in a great way and and I suppose each part of your career has taught you something you know completely different but in a probably an all-round a very positive way what was um I'm always interested in the the decision to do a PhD that's always a an interesting one um what was that kind of was there a moment you just did you wake up one day and just thought you know what PhD I'm going to do that <laughs> or was it more considered than that yeah I think there's definitely not um a sort I'm not the sort of person that maps everything out so I a little bit I'm a little bit impulsive it would have been thought about but for maybe a month or two before I started applying you know it's not something that I had my overall plan the a little bit of I would say it's not lethargy, but a little bit of routine snuck in, you know, to the vet work. Mm. And it becomes 
a bit less inspiring than you think it's going to be when you first qualify because in reality like any job you do a lot of the same things day in day out and that doesn't sit so well with me I prefer as a lot of us at Vet in Vet Life do we prefer to be stimulated and learning and challenged and um, so I would say that my personality didn't suit long long term in practice um, because I didn't quite feel I was getting what I would have hoped from it and then I think the other thing as well is that when you're looking at a PhD although it's a bit of a scary thought and I, I think a lot of people you know weigh this up because it you feel like you're leaving practice you feel like you're sort of cheating on your vet degree a little bit by going to do something else but I think what I then did was I started to speak to people who were vets who had done PhDs and then taking career paths, which might be clinical, but equally might not be. And I thought it just opened up so many doors that it was worth doing. And literally what's the worst that can happen is you go back to being a vet. So it seemed like a good gamble. And as long as you look them alongside, you keep your hand in, you keep your skills up. I think there's only so much you can lose by doing a PhD, but there's a lot you can gain, you know, and that's basically yeah. why I did it in the end. I think we need to shake that off a little bit, this idea that we feel like we're cheating on our profession a little bit when we take these other decisions. And I, I think that comes up a lot in conversations that I have. And I do think we really need to be to be moving away from that and not feel like that because actually we're contributing, but in just in other ways, you know, you can still make meaningful contributions to this profession without necessarily always doing exactly what James Herriot did or <laughs> whatever you see in television you know in in whatever you know so I, I do think that's that's that is a really important point so as far as who you cheated on or who, who you <laughs> who you cheated on the vet profession with oh, I don't know um that that was better in my head it came out not so good <laughs> um that the 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 for me the biggest squiggle is this um, decision to become, I love it, this entrepreneur decision. So that sounds very exciting, a bit Dragon's Den. So tell us a little bit about that move then from doing your PhD and becoming an entrepreneur. Yeah, so I think, um, again, there's a lot of us in practice. I know people that I've worked with. We are, a lot of vets are naturally innovative we're naturally inventive, we're scientists, we've got all of the skills to be entrepreneurs, but it's not something that happens to be talked about on careers day. You know, you can be a small animal vet, you can be a mixed animal vet, but there isn't really that presentation of, or you could start some sort of business and, and change things and, and make a difference. And I think, you know, one of the reasons we go into veterinary medicine clinical practice is because every day we can make a little bit of a difference to maybe one cat or maybe, you know, through some sort of new business idea, you know, to medicine in general and to science. So so I don't think I'm unique in any way. I think it's what I'm saying there. You know, it's it's just that my past happened to stumble upon this opportunity, you know. Um, and then I think that the general idea, the the innovation was a straightforward a coincidence between the job I was doing in clinical pathology, so looking at diagnostic testing and analysing results and thinking of ways forward for those particular pets, cows, pigs, whatever it might be, and also what I knew from clinical practice and from my PhD. 
So I would say that it was something that almost presented itself to me and I just followed the path step by step. And then before you know it, you're you're looking at this completely different life and it's absolutely insane. Like my life now is so different from um, when I was in full-time practice. But, and it's been an amazing journey, but I don't think it's something that only I could do. And I really, really hope that other people will, you know, take those those leaps as well. I think we've got so much to give. And I think doctors do it much more often than vets. So I'd like to see that change. Yeah, for sure. So tell us what was the idea? Yeah. So basically, I um, the now I'm the CEO of a veterinary diagnostic testing company. So clearly, I was working in diagnostics. I'd just done a PhD in immunology. So that, that was where the idea came from. And there's a little biomarker called a microRNA. And it works in the epigenetic space. So we currently, when we're doing diagnostic tests in veterinary and medical world, we rely on proteins. But proteins are like an end product. And genetic testing has become a thing as well, of course. Epigenetics are really the interplay between the end product and your, I suppose, susceptibility to disease. And epigenetics are super important. They they are like the project management system of your um, immune reactions, your inflammatory reactions, your likelihood of becoming ill with a pathogen, et cetera. So so epigenetics are more newly discovered. We don't fully understand them yet, but the biggest player are these little microRNAs. So they project manage our immune system. So my idea was to create assays of these microRNAs to diagnose disease, but diagnose it more sensitively and with more specificity, do it earlier, and also, of course, be able to sort of give prognosis and monitoring and all these sorts of bits of information. But in order to get the best out of the data, we had to take the microRNAs biomarker assays and combine it with an artificial intelligence modeling system. So it went from being a neat little biotech idea to becoming quite, you know, advanced deep tech as well, as they call it, you know. Um, and um, so therefore became more scalable, more investable. There was lots of opportunity for us to use this assay in all sorts of different species and disease. So therefore, we created a bit of a wave in that sense um, in terms of what this could do uh, moving forward. So yeah, so that was that was the, the, that's the sort of crux of it is taking a little biomarker, sticking some AI modeling on and making a diagnostic tests. So that's what we do. I mean, it sounds very cool. And and. Well, first of all, can you give us a more specific example of like, so how is that going to affect me as a clinician? What, what, give me an example of why that's going to make my life better. Or, sorry, that's, oh God, how arrogant. Not my life, I mean, my, <laughs> I don't know what you mean. Animal's life. Like, but me too. How is it going to make me happier? <laughs> yeah. Totally. So there, there's a few aspects to that. I won't um, go into massive detail, but there's a few aspects. So the first thing, is that microRNAs are found in all body fluids. So that means if you're on farm, you can take a milk sample. If you're in a clinic with an angry cat, you can take a saliva sample. Or if you're on a telemedicine platform with an owner at home, you can ask them to take the dog's urine sample and send it in. Or you can just go, you know, so 2022 and just take a blood sample. So, you know, that's also fine. So I think that sample flexibility is really important because vets are under so much pressure just now in terms of, I mean, we don't need to say COVID and, and puppies really to to um, sort of 
you know, kind of uh, quantify that pressure. But there's a lot of a, a lot of move away from the traditional take your dog that's sick to the vets, get a blood sample type of approach. So that allows that kind of capacity to be built in around vet practices, which is cool. And then the second thing is the early disease detection. So, for example, we have a um, a kind of uh, R&D pipeline running around cardiovascular disease. So if you think of some of the degenerative diseases that are really important to detect early, like heart disease or kidney disease, if you think about our current blood sampling solutions, we just are not able to detect early stage disease. But yet if we could detect early stage disease and put in place medications where appropriate, diets where appropriate, uh, weight control, exercise management, etc., then there's just a plethora of studies now suggesting that that pet, for example, gets a better quality of life or better longevity, um, or both, well, both really, uh, for longer. So it's really important that we stop dropping that ball and waiting on heart murmurs to appear, waiting on PUPD before we do diagnostics. But the reason we do that is because there is no diagnostic in that space beforehand. So clients are looking for wellness testing and yet we're still reactive because the tools aren't there. So I think that's hard. That makes your life better. Um, And then I suppose the last aspect to it is it's important to be able to accurately predict disease. So, for example, if you have a cat with early stage heart disease, there is a so what question there um, from the owner, you know. And I think that at the moment we say, well, monitoring we're going to scan again in six months we're going to do kidney bloods in six months etc whatever it might be um but actually it's possible with microRNAs and this is still um work in progress as opposed to finalized but it's possible to predict the course of disease so when you look at microRNAs in humans for example it's really fascinating work in heart disease in humans where there's certain microRNAs that will elevate in the sort of six to 12 months before a human dies of heart disease. So therefore you can tell they've got heart disease and they're pretty stable for a while. And then the microRNA profile deranges and you know that person's gonna die. So we're able therefore to predict whether we care about the heart disease. Is that the end of life problem? Or is that just a you know backstage problem and we've got other things to deal with with this cat, dog, cow, horse, whatever, yeah. Wow. So it, wow. it's super interesting. Um, that's that's, incre- that's incredible, actually. That predict. Well, I don't know. It's slightly, slightly creepy. It's slightly creepy. You're going to die. <laughs> yeah, creepy. There was something creepy about that. Yeah, I did think that. Um, are, so are you the first pair? Are you the first company in the veterinary space that is doing this in this way? We're the first. Yeah, we're the first company in the world in the medical space. So we're ahead of the human field on this side. Um, as well you're the, sorry one more time with that so you're the first company in the whole entire world before medicine that's doing this yes exactly so there is intense research in this area it's not like we're we're not sort of off on some limb on our own there's a lot of research but in terms of actually getting together something that works people have looked at microRNAs in isolation one or two of them you know, looked at them in tissue, looked at them in different disease states, but never put the pieces together properly. And then they've never built an AI model to be able to understand it. So we're the first people to kind of bring all those those new pieces of tech together and be able to say, we can do this and we can diagnose disease. So yeah. That is pretty, 
how do you feel about that is that not quite cool do you feel do you feel powerful <laughs> do you feel <laughs> <laughs> it's it's honestly insane it, it doesn't it doesn't feel like that though because because you do it in steps you know you don't realize that at first you realize that after a period of time that you're the first person to be doing that so looking back it's an incredible sort of it's been an incredible three years but um yeah and I'm very proud of us I think it's amazing what we're doing but it's a it's a complete race like we are the front of the wave but there's going to be a wave of people behind us realizing what we're doing and and there's other people using nucleotides and AI you know kind of running alongside us but not using microRNAs or RNAs they're using DNA for example so yeah so we're out there but um I wouldn't say we're quite like Einstein level or anything, you know. Okay. We're innovative. Um, I would. Say. <laughs> I, I mean, we're pretty good. We're not like Einstein. Okay, I, I think that's. I mean, that, if that's your benchmark, I think that's quite okay. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's a really big, important kind of space to be in. When you know, when you think about like these huge um medical uh particularly i'm thinking in america something really like vast in silicon valley type organization do you feel intimidated to be in that sort of space generally is that a, is that a intimidating thing to be in yeah yeah it is i think but what i would say actually is that one of the most intimidated uh, kind of or the, the most intimidated I've ever been in a situation would have been our first few pitches for money from what really looking back is you know relatively for small money for from companies or business competitions that were there to support and help you that was the hardest because I think it's like anything getting started you know and doing it for the first time and you know, standing on that stage or sitting on that Zoom video, which I think is even worse because you can't see anyone, you know, was just terrifying. And I've had like a a kind of circle, a closed circle with that recently where there's a business competition called Scottish Edge. And that was the first place that we got money from. So I pitched to them a judging panel, totally Dragon's really? Den, like it's completely what you're imagining. Yeah. So I pitched to them for five minutes and then I got, you know, 15 minutes of questions, you know, on the business plan, which is like forming. But, you know, we're not mature at this stage. We're quite early stage. And that was about three years ago. And now this uh, next week, I think, or later this week, I'm actually going back to the Scottish Edge competition as a judge. So I'm going to be on the other side. I'm going to be the dragon's den dragon as opposed to the, the person, you know, actually pitching. So I think it is intimidating. And now I'm speaking to like $100 million funds in the US and these sorts of people for investment. So it's completely different. I've kind of moved step by step up in terms of who you're talking to. But yeah, that was such a nice, nice circle to close to think how scared I was going on to that pitch. And now I'm going to be sitting on the other side, you know, like really hoping everybody does really well because I know what it's like to be in that hot seat, you know. So, so it's a bit crazy. What an incredible kind of full circle moment to be just completely on the other side of that. That is absolutely incredible. And, you know, we talk about, you know, um, the discomfort we have as vets sort of discussing money, uh, ge- you know, generally. Um, and actually then you're talking about going in and asking for potentially you know, more than a hundred pound estimate, I'm sure, you know, like <laughs> a lot more um, exactly. mul- multiples of money. That's, that's, um, that's incredible. 
I want to ask you, um, and I don't, I certainly don't want this to come out in the wrong way, but I'm just going to have to say it because I, I, I never quite know how to say half the things I say. <laughs> how does it feel, um, or is it relevant for me to ask you, how does it feel to be a woman in that space? Yeah, that's super relevant, actually. So, uh, not, I don't think um, I have had, uh, like, personally, I don't feel like I have been subjected to uh, discrimination in any way directly 100% not happened but there is a very much a subconscious bias towards men in STEM so the investments um, that is raised by women in science biotech you know technology space represents about one to two percent of the investment in total that's raised in any year so there's not just one to two percent of entrepreneurs that are women it's just that we tend to be given less money or, mm. you know, less often given money. So, yeah, it's a problem. And I think it's a problem that people are actively addressing. So there's now venture capital funds set up or angel networks set up just to invest in women-led businesses, you know. So there is a change. But, you know, it's a bit like um, like any of these positive discrimination policies where there's a lot of rhetoric there's a lot of perceived action, but essentially people, like it's a, a, a subconscious or a unconscious, I should say, bias. I know it's not deliberate, that people prefer white people, that people with investment money prefer white people and they prefer men. And I think that there is just going to be perhaps a generation before that can change meaningfully. So, um, so it is still a, a concern, I think. And across many sectors, it's not like it's just STEM. But it is something to be aware of, you know, if you're co- if you're founding a company or co-founding a company, that you can seek out investment as a woman, um, for that's directed for women, you know, and that's not a bad place to start. Um, for some companies, I think as well to to get going. I think I mean it probably that bias exists across the whole world with everything. Sadly, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like I don't think that, like you say, that's certainly. I mean, you could say that about the veterinary profession. Well. No, that's different. I think, um, well, no, hold on. I think you could, because like for for my example of that is, and again, I'm not being critical, but I'm just saying it's fact. So the, the nominations for the RCBS Council came out, I don't know if you saw these, the other week. Not yet, no. So no disrespect to any of the people, but there was maybe 10 candidates, two of which were women, all the rest were white men, definitely over the age of 45 um so you know and and fine if that's what they want to do but is that is that representative of the veterinary profession currently i'm i'm not sure that it is you know and and yeah and we were talking to another guest actually in the podcast about you know a similar topic she's a woman of color and um she was talking about the speakers at the london vet show and saying well actually majority were men majority were white men and about 0.5 percent were anyone of color and you know and a, a and much less you know female speakers from a profession that's predominantly female you know so yeah. um there definitely is disparity would you not say <laughs> oh completely i mean you know you're looking at i live in a world where 99 percent of the venture capital investment goes to men (laughs) I mean that's a staggering statistic you know 99% so that totally holds up and like you say it's probably not the vet profession that's reflected in these statistics that you just um, mentioned 
but possibly the more senior part of the veterinary profession is reflected there. So again, perhaps in the next generation, that's a positive change that we'll see so that it's more inclusive and uh, a little bit more diverse, which is obviously a good thing for everybody at any point in the profession for it to be more inclusive and more diverse. So fingers crossed that changes for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're when you are so much at the cutting edge of something, you know, and I, you know, as you, you know, clearly are, which is incredible. What is there when you're at the front, even if there's a wave coming behind you, which it sounds like there is. So you've got, you know, you're obviously keeping up with what. <laughs> Paddling like crazy. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, 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 I can imagine. Um, is there like, is there an end point? Do you see like a, is there a, an end? <laughs> or does it just, <laughs> does it just keep going the way? Yeah, yeah, no. I think most entrepreneurs um, who start businesses have a plan to, exit the business at some point because you will literally die if you work this hard for too long I think that's number one it's super hard work and it and therefore you love what you're doing of course you have to um it's really enjoyable there's all sorts of emotional roller coasters and successes but it's not a nine-to-five you know you are putting a lot into it so most entrepreneurs start a business with an exit plan and that exit plan can come in various ways but a very common one is to build a business to the point where it's a, an asset you can then sell on to a larger business. So, for example, um, if you want to make a, a difference in diagnostic testing, so for example, so that you can help cats and dogs and you can improve the greenhouse gas emissions of cows and you can improve consumer safety and production animal and all of these things that we want to do, then if we do that organically, it's going to take us like, 50 years I mean can you imagine us trying to get to the size of Antec diagnostic mm-hmm. labs in the US or IDEX you know UKU etc it's just not going to happen overnight mm-hmm. so the better way to do it is to to pair yourself up with a larger big animal health corporate in some way or another who can say like this technology let's go and we'll use it and then immediately it can be distributed and um, put to use so that's usually what people mm-hmm. try to do is get to the point where you have an exit plan. But of course, there's lots of different ways you can exit as well. It might be you end up selling your shares to someone who wants to run the business more organically and more boutique, you know, and you go off and do something else. It's it's hard to know. But yeah, you're supposed to, when you start a business, you're supposed to know how you want to get out of it before you you actually, you know, pull the trigger and start it. So it's kind of a different way of looking at things. Then you're going to go on Dragon's Den as one of the panelists because that yeah you know and and then you're like the big investor for all the other people right (laughs) (laughs) exactly that's it yeah I'll just buy buy all the dragons out actually at that point exactly (laughs) I think you'd be really I think you'd be really good in dragons den so if well actually so let me ask you this just came into my head so if you now I don't want you to give away like your next big idea let's maybe not give that away but if you were if you were to go on dragons den tomorrow maybe with kind of one of those pipe dreams that's a little bit less um you know top end what what idea would you pitch to them so i have got another couple of ideas actually um of things that i'd like to do uh, i don't i'm not going to give you all the secrets but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but i do love microbiome work I love microbiome work. So there's a lot to be done there. And there's a lot of things about the microbiome that, that again, are 
are kind of becoming more clear. And one of the things I really like about microbiome is that you can manipulate it. So once we understand Mm. disease pathways and the relationship back to the microbiome a bit more, we can actually medicate our animals or or humans, of course, not animal specific, with things like dietary changes or probiotics or, um, you know, other ways, other more advanced versions of probiotics. And I think that the way the um, health industry is moving just now, people dislike chemicals and tablets and vaccines. And I know it's perhaps not 100% logical, but it's the way things are moving that in actual fact, these natural remedies, if they're actually effective, because we're working with something like the microbiome, and we know how important microbiome is for health, then it allows us to fit in with what people want, but still make an effective disease, you know, um, improving difference for our animals. So there's work to be done, but there's a little bit of microbiome signaling that I've been watching. So that's idea number two. We'll see. <laughs> okay. I would, um, I would do craft gin. All right. <laughs> I mean, it's not novel, but I... oh, I'd probably open a flower shop. You're right. I'd probably, yeah. Sorry. Okay, like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, lo- what I, lo- what I was, it's almost like a little insight into, I love that kind of like a little insight into the mind of someone who just, and that's why people like you do what you do because you, I think, although you're, you're saying, that your veterinary and your PhD and all that's kind of helped. But I, I do think, you know, the, the um, Steve Jobs of the world do, they must think in a different way. There must be a, a little entrepreneurial switch mm. that just is slightly different from everyone. Don't you think? Cause I would, ne- I would never think of clever things. Well, no, no, I think you would. I think there maybe <laughs> is between, you know, your super traditional researcher who, who perhaps misses the point is sometimes in research we miss the implication or the impact of what we've just found and instead we keep going down through the layers because we want to understand to the nth degree what Mm. molecule x is doing but actually up at level a or b we had a molecule that we could have done something with that was beneficial you know and then at the same time you can research it in more detail so yeah i think you're right i think sometimes it's good to go off on a tangent rather than um, you know keeping on a, a sort of what would you say like super traditional research track yeah I agree and I, I just so do you the last time we spoke you were still doing locuming as a veterinary surgeon is that still is that still happening <laughs> no I do three hours ah! a week three hours, <laughs> three, three, three hours. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't really can't really say I'm doing anything particularly no, I'm definitely not as you know, we're saying cheating on the veterinary profession. I'm definitely not a real vet at the moment. I do three hours. Yeah. I honestly think that, you know, being the CEO of, you know, sort of changing the world, you know, and then st- still honestly doing three hours, I think that is, that that will definitely resonate with some people as being very inspiring because I think that, no, I think that's keeping it real. I like that a lot. So um, it just feels yeah. like, you know, it's hard to leave. It's just hard to leave, you know. And I think um, I could go now, but you just feel out of touch immediately and you're a bit worried to change your practicing status to not practicing. Yeah, well, it's funny. <laughs> you know, I, it just feels yeah, weird. I, I, I met up with a friend actually at the weekend who works for a, a big um, drug company and um, he's taken himself, you know, off the register. I was like, you've done what? Yeah. You know what he's like, but I don't, I don't want, I don't need that. I'm not paying that 300, whatever it is. You know, 
And I was like, oh God, I mean, that's really cheating. There's, there's some yeah. bad, you know, like that feels <laughs> like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll work from home more and all that kind of stuff, but I'm not sure I could ever not pay my 310 yeah. pounds or whatever it is. Um, anyway. I know, unless um, you're on like, you know, some sort of maternity leave or care leave or something, that's totally exactly. fine. But yeah, 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 just, yeah. I think it would just be strange to hit that button at renewal time and say, it's almost like saying, no, I'm not a vet anymore, you know, and it's just not how yeah. I feel. I feel like I'm a vet just doing something a little bit different for a bit, you know? So yeah, I totally am with okay. you, I think. <laughs> Yeah, although I've just I put the Euro mil millions on tonight, and if I won that, then yes. that would be all all bets are off. I would literally you'd not see me for dust. Anyway, so <laughs> I'll see you in Dragon's Den. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, oh, I'd be terrible at that. Um, so you will definitely, uh, you know, from the things you've discussed today on the podcast be very inspiring to many people listening. I wonder if you could share with us who inspires you. Yeah, I think um, it really changes almost day to day for me. So I think that there are there are definitely people in my life that have been very inspiring. So, um, you know, I know a lot of people in the vet world who have worked extremely hard um, in various ways, whether that's traditional practice or they've gone on to do something else. And, and in actual fact, in the business, I'm watching a lot of people take a lot of risks, you know. So um, I have people that work with me now that are employed full time in the business and a young business like ours that's actually not a small ask of people you know to leave what they're currently doing and the level of career they're at and come and take a risk and maybe only know they'll get a wage for a few months until we know what's happening with investments or partnerships etc so that's super inspiring because that that again it's one of these unreal feelings where you have an idea at some point in a, you know, a little office in a university building. And next thing, people are giving up their livelihoods and working on that idea. That's absolutely crazy. So, so that's super inspiring. And then I think um, there are a lot of um, women in STEM who, you know, are amazing. A lot of women in finance who do really good work. And, and I think um, the, when we recorded this last time as well, um, I'd mentioned my mum was a, a, or is, she's still alive, of course, but she's just retired. So um, was a scientist as well. And I think that's a cool thing when you're younger, growing up to my mum, she taught physics, but uh, had done, of course, a physics degree. And I think had thought to go on to do a PhD. And um, so it's great to know or to have those role models in your life who are able to show you that, that, stem holds careers that you might want to be involved with for example you know so that's also um a good uh or sort of a what do you say you know so someone to look up to and someone to to admire in terms of the work they did in that subject area so yeah so there's but there's really a lot of people that's the difficulty with that question is that i think most people inspire me in some way you know i mean yourself scott with the podcast there's all sorts of other people you know, in the vet world who have gone on to launch like production companies, flexible working companies, um, you know, who maybe or maybe just have been always quite shy and stand up in conference and speak really well. You know, I think all of us mm. are are surpassing what we thought we could yes. do or what we expected to do. So, yeah. you know, that it's not hard to find inspiration in this, um, I would say, in this sector at all. Yeah, no, that's I think that's really very true. Very true. And people... I think ha the majority of the time don't understand that they are inspiring. 
I would say, you know, and yeah. that's what I love. Like people don't realize until you're like, and I speak to people and I'm like, sorry, you did what? Like, you know, you're like, <laughs> that's, did you know that that was really cool? Do you know what I mean? I don't think people realize how cool yeah. they are until someone else says, no, that's it's so true. I'll never forget one of the earliest episodes we recorded was um, with a vet nurse called Jack Pye. And um, he's like, you know, some international bowls champion, you know what I mean? And, you, you know, <laughs> wow. but you know when, when someone says something and you're like, I'm sorry, what? Like, you know, at like really high level stuff or whatever. And it's just stuff like that. So, you know, it's not silly. It's silly to them or whatever. And you're like, no, that's actually, that's really very cool. So let's talk about yes, that. Yes, it is super cool. No, yeah. I know. It's amazing what people can achieve outside work, inside work. Yeah, it's crazy. And I think, just like a lot of passionate people yeah, in vet med yeah you know we are lucky i think no you're you're absolutely right so um apart from world domination <laughs> yeah. being on dragon's den not in the den but actually one of the investors what um do you want to be when you grow up um so again i've got lots of different ideas here i've got two main theories um one is to be some sort of crazy serial entrepreneur from my yacht somewhere off the Cayman Islands, you know, that's not unattractive. Um, so, you know, who knows, perhaps I can do something more like that. But I think, um, I think usually I come back and settle on, you know, something a bit more hippie, you know, like I don't, don't think I'm chasing the material things, you know, or don't, not chasing them very effectively. So my, um, my kind of uh, current retirement plan is to buy one of those big SUVs, you know, one of those mm -hmm. crazy big, like that you mm -hmm. see on the American movies, and um, get two dogs and train them to be cadaver dogs, you know, who search out corpses, and this then drive around Europe. Wow, okay, wow, yeah. Okay. Right, okay, where's this going? <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry, you asked. <laughs> and then drive around Europe helping police solve cold crime cases, wow. I think. And then, you know, might write a book about that. So, so that just sounds like yeah. the sort of yeah. thing that, you know. So I was, I, 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 I mentioned earlier on about getting into your mind, but actually I'm not sure that I want to anymore. It feels like we're going <laughs> quite dark. <laughs> that is the, that's the most amazing answer to that question that I've, that will never, no one will ever top that. That is incredible. And then I'm going to write a book about it. Brilliant. Okay, good. <laughs> do you know? Do you know? And this is a terrifying thing that I found out because um, I told someone that and then they told me is that if you want to train cadaver dogs, you can actually buy human bones on Amazon. Stop it. I know. That's not real. So like think I'm creepy. Someone is selling a bit of their granny on Amazon for you to train your cadaver dogs I, that's terrifying I, I'm, I'm surprised it's on amazon but actually i mean the internet is a is a, a weird and wonderful and very dark place and i think i'm not so people <laughs> sell i mean people will buy anything do you know what i mean you you I don't, <laughs> it is mind-blowing that is i'm sure who's the guy that owns amazon bezos whatever i'm sure he should be like aware of that like <laughs> i think let's let's tweet him i think about that I think we should hashtag <laughs> hashtag cadaver dogs after we finish this series and just let them know. I think you're right. I totally think you're right. Hashtag don't sell your granny. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Especially when she's dead. Um, <laughs> so that is terrible. Um, on that note, I'm do I'm I'm derailed though. I can't I I can't even begin to think what the next question might be. Um, so 
you know, I suppose um, what's interesting actually is that, you know, you still have a, a, a heart and soul connection actually to the vet profession. So if you were to do all of this again, I suppose knowing what you do now, thinking to yourself, maybe would, a, would, an, would an MBA, would you know, would that have been better or whatever? Or maybe you've done one of those. But, um, you know, d- <laughs> would you would you make the decision to do vet school again? Has that really been integral in where you are now or could you have done it a different way, I suppose? Um, yes, I think the easiest way to get to where I am now, looking back, is to do vet school. I think that would be, I didn't mean it to happen that way, but I do think it worked for the best that way because what you essentially have, I suppose, in medicine if you're looking to create a diagnostic test in the human medical side, is that trials, sample collection, um, you know, the the amount of data you need in order to get through regulatory hurdles are much higher um, because it's really difficult, for example, to collect 100 samples from people with heart disease. But to collect 100 samples from dogs or cats with heart disease usually goes through ethics, no problems, because you're collecting samples anyway, for another reason, you know, and and, um, investigating that heart disease. So I think that the ability to take a test from, um, you know, kind of innovative point through to market is easier in vet medicine. So that I think would be a good thing. But I think much more like that's a business reason, I suppose, for it, but much more kind of um, from personal level, I think that certainly uni you know, through my time at work, etc. I just met some of the best people. And I'm not saying doctors aren't really lovely. I'm sure they are. But I just can't imagine them being any cooler than my mates, you know? (laughs) No, but isn't that, I can't tell you how much I, like, I I agree with that. I really do think, like, you know, not all of my friends are, 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 are vets, but I look around in the vet friends that I've got, vet and nurse friends that I've got, and I think, nowhere else in the world would there be people like yeah yeah like you know and I love I love that I know we're biased but I think like I never I've never met a doctor who had as much of a laugh at university (laughs) as we did or had such has so many friends from uni you know still still they're in contact with etc I think it's more competitive it's more do you know, I think in some ways, I think uni for doctors a bit more grown up and I don't mean yeah. to sound like we were kids, but we definitely had oh. like a lot of downtime, and a lot of fun. So I think that helps. And it's you know? so, I don't know how you feel going back to Edinburgh now. Like I was there this week to see a, to see a comedian at the Festival Theatre and I mean, and, and we ended up parking close to Summerhall and I was driving around trying to find a, a bloody... <laughs> yeah charging point for my electric car most ridiculous decision I've ever made that's another story anyway um (laughs) but it was just the the nostalgia for me is overwhelming and I just will never not feel just fuzzy in the best way when I just love it so much and the reason I love it so much is because I had such a blooming good time and it will, yeah, exactly. you know, and I still to this day, for me personally, and it's not the best part for me of being a vet was going to vet school. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I totally agree. I totally agree. You know, and like just the still laugh now about anatomy classes and, you know, still talk about yeah. a lot of those times, actually. And it's strange now for me because my daughter 
lives in Edinburgh. She's gone through uni. Oh, wow. She's done all her stuff. And yeah, and she lives and works in Edinburgh now. So, um, and I, I take it, I think she finds me super boring. Like I am that mum, you know, because we'll go out for lunch and we'll walk past Summer Hall and I'll say, oh, do you know, I used to study shit. Okay, fine, mum, thanks. I've heard it. But listen, <laughs> no, I... Because I can't help it. I have to talk about it. Listen, there is no, I will be that dad because i the minute they will be of an age to appreciate that i will take them there and we're really going off on a tangent now the only other thing about summer hall is this so if you've been in the we, we actually looked at it um as a possible venue for a cpd event that we were going to organize and this was oh, so cool. really cool right but no one else got how cool that was it was me. I was like, no, you don't understand how cool this is because I <laughs> yeah. were, because I dissected a dog in this room and now it's a like we can have a Kaylee. It's mad, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so for those listening, it's now an, the Summer Hall, which is the old vet school that we both went to, is now a, an arts venue. So you can actually hire the old dissection room and have a Kaylee. I mean, wild. There's bands play. It's mad. Um. The only thing about it is when the the events coordinator was showing me around and telling me about it and all this, I, w- I almost felt like stopping them going, I'm sorry, no, 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 I'm sorry, you don't, no, 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 you don't get to tell, you don't get to tell me about this place, you don't get, <laughs> I, like, you feel this kind of ownership of this incredible yeah. building and I really was offended that this, you know, jumped up 23-year-old art student was telling me about it. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I was like, no, 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 you don't get to do that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. It's like, no, I'll take the tour from here. Thank you. This this is where I once, you know, found a sternum and had no idea what it was. Okay, this is that table. Yeah, Yeah, you've got no idea what went on in these in these corridors. Like, I can't. I can tell you some stories. Anyway, um, so uh, to (laughs) we we really went off there, right? Um, I don't know how much of that will be included in the final edit. So, um, Karen will have a good good time editing this one. So, my final question to you is: um, from all this amazing stuff, what would be the piece of advice that you would give to those listening today? Piece of advice. So, um, I suppose if you if you have an idea, if you so like seriously, you know, if you have an idea, something that you can innovate, something that you think you know might make a difference in some way then make sure that you think about how what investors call trigger points. Get as many trigger points around that idea as you can. So investors want to hear about tech solutions and they want to hear about ideas that can be used globally. And they want to hear about ideas that can capture carbon or reduce greenhouse gas emissions or feed 8 billion people or these sorts of things. So realistically, if you've got an idea and your idea, and you see a lot of ideas which are perfectly good, but are perhaps about, you know, controlling temperature and fish tanks and things like it's not not a good idea, but you're not necessarily going to go in and inspire investors in the same way as if you go in and say, I have solved sustainable protein production, or I have created something that's going to reduce methane emissions by 25% globally, or you know, I've created uh, something that means that a dog can live until it's 25 years old, etc. So I'm not saying you have to have an innovation that's 
um, you know, literally going to change the world to that extent. But think about it from an investment point of view and how many of these little triggers that investors are looking for can you hit and then take it out there. So that would be my my uh, advice from a, a sort of business point of view. And I think, but, but it's so funny because actually even from a, you know, we sit and scream at the telly on Dragon's Den and, and I think you've got to know your business as well and actually... <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and and this is the thing, like you know, we, I'm I'm not an entrepreneur, but we obviously started yeah. up our our you know company, and I think now more and more I understand that that you don't walk into a pitch and not know facts and figures. Do you know like, what I mean? I just never think know it, you're wild. You never know. But what, and no, no, and 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 uh, www. the difference between net and gross profit. dot com. Like, why does no one? Why does no one understand it? <laughs> they ask it every time. Just know. Do you know, know what I mean? Like, just fundamental. Like, just know yeah. that. Write it on your hand. Write it on your hands so that you can refer to it. Yeah. Because you just have to watch the episodes. You don't need to be a business genius. Anyway. No, I know. Exactly. And I think the other thing you can do is just find a friend who's got some financial savvy. That's like the other exactly. pal, the, yeah. the other sort of yeah. plan. Yeah. Take a pal with you. Yeah. Taking a pal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, listen, thanks. So uh, listen, wonderfully inspiring and, and you're doing some really cool stuff. We'll put um all the details of, um, the stuff you do in the show notes and so people can check that out more um but it's just so interesting to then watch your journey and continue to uh, as you continue to innovate and inspire and so we're we're just very um privileged that you um have chatted with us no it's been a it's been a a very good to reminisce about summer hall and to to uh you know to catch up and just to i think more so just to tell the story because um you know there's maybe just one other person out there who's thinking about doing something and it yeah. might just be the the little tickle they need to go in and look into it further so I hope it is you know really truly that is the kind of conversation that I think that that exactly does that so I'm um yes and if you are that person that has been tickled then do let us know that you were um, inspired. And, and if you're making multiples of millions, then, you know, help us out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, also that. Of also that, yeah. <laughs> anyway, but listen, thanks so much again. Honestly, that was great. And uh, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Not at all. Just a massive thank you to Eve for chatting today. I am infinitely inspired and I hope you are too. Uh, Now we're going to go into our clinical segment um, and chat to the lovely Gemma and very thankful to the amazing Protexin for their support of this podcast. Hi Gemma, thanks so much for joining us. So today we are going to be um, chatting through a sort of special clinical segment. It's a a follow-on really um, to some of the discussions I've been having recently about leptospirosis, but I wanted to delve a little bit more deeply into the general sort of principles um, of the the treatment of um, liver disease. So I'm um, Gemma, and you've been on the podcast um, before, um, but I wonder if you can just briefly uh, introduce yourself for the the listeners, just so we 
we know who the voice that suddenly appears is <laughs> and not <Yeah>. just random. <laughs> um, so my name is Gemma, Gemma Ives. I um, work for Protexim and have been there since 2018. So coming up five years with the company. Mm -hmm. And before that, I worked as a small animal vet in practice for five years, which I am just delving to put my toe back into doing again as well. Oh, oh, that's cool. Interesting. So, <laughs> so these chats are helpful for everyone. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> uh, oh, that's really cool. Um, okay. Well, listen. Thanks again for joining us. I'm just going to kind of set up um, just a bit of a background, I suppose, about um, you know, liver the treatment of liver disease generally. And I think you know the the biggest um challenges we have uh are are fundamentally related to potentially the lack of of data sometimes that we have for a lot of treatments and I don't think that that just goes for liver disease that's a frustration um across the board in veterinary medicine um and so we do have to work with you know sometimes limited data um but uh I suppose you know even more important then that we look at the literature that is available and I think that's important even when it comes to um non-prescription um treatments for liver disease um i think one of the other sort of cornerstones of this is that actually we don't often understand why the liver is diseased and so it's not just about the treatment being some elements being uncertain i think overall we don't always know why the liver becomes diseased and that is um challenging and then i think the third challenging thing about the treatment of liver disease in our small animal patients we are obviously uh, mainly talking about cats well not mainly we are talking about cats and dogs is that um monitoring the response to treatment can also be quite challenging because it's it's a struggle sometimes to get owners to do for instance liver biopsies and then to try and get them to do repeat liver biopsies is nigh on impossible you know so i think you know that follow-up is um is it can be very very challenging i think when when we when when the listeners are sort of when we took when we say you know the treatment of liver disease generally i i i would think that most people are thinking about these kind of cytoprotective agents so we know that the liver is you know susceptible to oxidative damage um and we know that um particularly glutathione um is a kind of important part of this process because it's um a, you know an essential antioxidant and it's uh, stored in hepatocytes in the liver um and we know that sometimes those concentrations become can become um depleted in, in certain um conditions and certain diseases of uh the liver i think so Gemma, one of the one of the first things so we'll, we'll kind of come come back to that um one of the first things that I think can be confusing to people is that when we talk about reaching for a liver protection supplement or whatever from the shelf, we are talking about products that don't just contain one thing, right? So we're talking about um, products that probably have multiple different things in them. When we're looking at these products that are that we're reaching for to support just generally cases of liver disease, and they can be used in many, many cases. What, what, are, what are the key components that we're really looking for uh, it, 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 as far as the cornerstones of liver protection? So I suppose kind of your your big main one is going to be your SAMI or S-adenosylmethionine. Um, and as you mentioned already, glutathione is a 
kind of key antioxidant in the body and is primarily made in the liver and stored in the liver. So SAMI is a precursor for that glutathione, which is why it's such an important ingredient there. Um, and then also psilocybin. So psilocybin is extracted from milk thistle. And um, so milk thistle itself exists obviously as a plant. And from that, you can extract psilomarin. So you might see on some liver supplements psilomarin. But actually within psilomarin, there's multiple different active um, flavonoids. And the most active flavonoid is psilocybin. So psilocybin is the part that's actually going to be of benefit in liver disease. However, psilocybin on its own has really poor bioavailability. So if we're looking at a liver supplement and we want to actually be getting some use out of that psilocybin, um, which is another antioxidant, we want to see that it has been complex to something. So it's been shown that if it's complex to phosphatidylcholine, then the bioavailability is going to be four to five times better than if it was given on its own. Mm -hmm. So ideally, those are probably the, the two key antioxidants that we're going to see when we're looking for liver supplements on the shelf. And I think that what's really important there and what's really interesting is that, that again, it's not just about sort of bunging things together. I think there there has to be that understanding about bioavailability. You know, these these products have to be created in a in a way that is mindful of the, the substances that, that, that are in there and because they've got to. I suppose it's no use that they're there if they're not going to then go on and do any sort of, um, uh, you know, have any sort of, you know, beneficial um, effect. So going back to SAMI, um, so we mentioned that ultimately it's important that we have SAMI in there because of the synthesis of glutathione, potentially some anti-inflammatory effects, maybe some effects on apoptosis, maybe even some anti-carcinogenic effects. So I think there there are potential, you know, uh, wide ranging uh, positive benefits of um, of of having that in our liver support uh, products. What um, you know, you talked a little bit about sort of bioavailability. I think there are some key things about you know, the administration of particularly SAMI. Um, and actually, again, there are some important factors to consider when we're administering it to our patients. It can't just be given willy-nilly as you like. Um, no, you're right. So again, with regards to bioavailability, it's been shown that if SAMI is given with even as much as 100 grams of food, then actually it reduces the bioavailability by about 60%. So really we need to be giving on an empty stomach. And um, generally we'd say kind of, your best bet is normally first thing in the morning when they've been starved overnight an hour before breakfast. And um, so it is kind of empty stomach, but I guess with each owner, they've got a different setup as to when they're feeding and whatnot. Um, the other thing is, mm-hmm. if it does have an enteric coating, it needs to be mm-hmm. important not to cut into that enteric coating. SAMI itself is a really fragile molecule. It takes a lot of care to kind of um, present it at levels that are required within a supplement and um, a lot of care even in that packaging to make sure that there's not too much air accessing capsules and this kind of thing and so therefore you know we don't want to then be cutting into them before we've actually administered it and um, because actually that is just going to expose the SAMI to oxygen and to food in the stomach and um, which is then going to degrade it and we're not going to get as much benefit from it and um, inside the animal being absorbed and getting to the liver where we want it. I think that's and again things that maybe people don't consider you know we we and I I can you know I can relate to the fact that sometimes it's not easy to pill an animal um on an empty stomach and blah 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 you know so but I, I actually one of the things that just came into my head so I have I mean in my ignorant days obviously um mm-hmm. crushed uh 
Sammy containing products and I, I think I might have even put them down feeding tubes oh god you probably I mean, still get benefit from the other ingredients and you might get some uh, from Sammy but it's going to be dramatically reduced so my question though is if you are in a position um and maybe this data is not there but if you are in a position where you do have to crush it is there any then benefit of maybe giving more could you give like a higher dose with that? It's, is that they're, they're both really safe ingredients? So the LD50 for Sammy is 233 times the recommended dose, mm-hmm. and the um psilocybin's been given at 80 times the recommended dose with no adverse effect. So they are really safe ingredients. There's no study specifically to say kind of what percentage degradation or how quickly it's gonna happen if we are cutting into the capsule. So you know, there's nothing to say specifically what how you should upregulate the dose, but mm. it definitely makes sense that that could be something worth considering if you are having to open the capsules for whatever reason, then you know, potentially giving a higher dose so you're going to get more that yeah. hopefully is, is not being degraded as a reasonable consideration. Yeah, okay. But just certainly a really important point to consider now. Um, so the dose of SAMI, I mean, you'll see in the literature, you know, a lot of these, you know, there, there are doses for these individual components, but actually the best advice is, you know, we would really be dosing as per the manufacturer's guidelines for the products that contain multiple different things. So we can we can see SAMI as, a, as a, an individual dose, but really it's always going to practically come as part of a package of 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 other other things and we we would follow those recommendations and as you said i think important to to be aware of the fact that really there are very little adverse effects uh reported for for sammy and so we would consider it to be a very safe um uh, a very safe thing to be giving to our patients so really coming to the crux of this then so what um so it sounds really good you know it sounds good um what about the evidence and 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 trying to pull on the evidence that we do have for for the use of of sami in our in our patients yeah of course i suppose well there's a fair amount of evidence documenting the fact that in various different liver conditions glutathione levels are reduced within the liver and oxidative stress has been documented and mm-hmm. um, so oxidative stress essentially happens when there's an imbalance between free radicals that takes you right back to chemistry lesson days but essentially they're molecules that are um, really reactive because they've got an unpaired electron in their outer shell and they're going to go grabbing electrons from other molecules within the body so they're very reactive they're produced in normal processes like respiration and metabolism and normally in a healthy animal they're balanced by naturally occurring antioxidants but if we have any sort of inflammation or exposure to toxins we see an increased production of free radicals happening Um, and if the liver is diseased we see reduced production of antioxidants and that tips the animal from kind of this nice redox state which is where the antioxidants and oxygen radicals are balanced into oxidative stress Um, and so it's been documented that glutathione levels which is this important antioxidant are reduced in liver disease Um, and then also there are studies showing that if we give SAMI orally actually that's able to increase both hepatic and red blood cell glutathione levels Um, so glutathione is also really important in red blood cells as well and as an antioxidant so I don't um I had a the just to mention a a couple of you know, uh, papers that I find interesting. Um, so there, as you say, there there are a number of studies um, potentially looking at not just the liver, but red blood cells. And actually just, that's a really important point for us to just to come to, to, to dwell on just for a second. I think, you know, we think of, of SAMI containing products um, very much for the liver, but actually I 
definitely use it beyond the liver and particularly mm-hmm. uh, for me um the best other example would be things like paracetamol toxicity yeah, um uh, uh, uh cats that have got hind's body anemia for whatever reason yeah. dogs that have got i saw a a uh, case of onion powder ingestion relatively recently yeah. where there was you know Heinz body so I think remembering that there's a role for Sammy um with red blood cells and, and potentially other things um yeah, there is a nice study looking well. at paracetamol toxicity in cats that showed that administration of Sammy reduced mm-hmm. the drop in PCV and also improved the recovery from the Heinz bodies as well so yeah. there's nice evidence to support it too so yeah so well. I think yeah really important to remember that um Dose-wise, maybe that's something worth pointing out that yeah. the dose in the study was higher. So, if using it in okay. toxicity cases, they used it at four times the recommended dose for three days, and then double the daily dose for two weeks. Um, and I, yeah, that's actually really interesting because I, I wondered. Um, I I I recommend something which maybe is wrong, and you can maybe tell me. So, I um, we're going to come on to talk about um, potentially using N-acetylcysteine in some of these yeah. cases too. I must admit, if if I, I I have said to people in the past, if you've if particularly if you're dealing with an acute, um, particularly toxicity, but even in some acute hepatitis, I and, and there's no access to N-acetylcysteine, then I have recommended higher doses of SAMI containing products for the first yeah. couple of days. And yeah, again, is, that's exactly the same approach as to what they did there, really, because they didn't yeah. use N-acetylcysteine, which I guess would be your kind yeah. of gold standard approach. But I think these days a lot of people don't keep it in practice. Yeah, it's true. Um, yeah, yeah, a lot of our reps will ask when they're out and about in practice, and people kind of say, "Oh, you know, they, they just don't have it on the shelf anymore." So yeah, having yeah. access to a SAMI containing supplement being able to use that at a higher dose if you don't yeah. have access to the injectable is it's a good enough alternative yeah no it's a, it's a good yeah a good alternative um yeah so a number of kind of case reports um of of pretty bad liver disease particularly where you know SAMI formed part of um the um treatment um mm-hmm. and I think the problem with a lot of these case reports although they you know the dogs that get like the highest dose of xylitol ever or the highest dose of paracetamol ever recorded um they 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 do get better the problem with a lot of case reports and this is not just for the the case of sammy but the the problem is that we have so many compounding factors and it's just one you know it's just one case so that's that's really um really challenging what i do sorry i was going to say a paper that i do always stands out to me that i think is um that is uh helpful um is the one where they uh used um denimarin i think um as part of um the management of um ccnu which is yeah. a chemotherapeutic agent um yeah. in uh you know that, that we use um and, and we know that there is um liver pathology potentially associated with the the administration of that chemotherapeutic yeah. agent um i don't know if you just maybe run through the benefit that we saw there yeah of course so it was um 50 dogs that had various different types of neoplasias that were receiving ccnu or lamustine which are the ones mm-hmm. familiar to people but um as part of their chemotherapy protocol and the dogs were split into two groups so half of them received denimarin alongside of their chemotherapy and half didn't and the dogs that received the denimarin um they didn't see increases in their liver enzymes or bilirubin and no no significant changes to their cholesterol and mm-hmm. um, whereas significant increases were seen in the group that didn't receive any denimarin um, another thing that's quite interesting is i think one out of the 25 dogs had to stop its chemotherapy protocol in the 
group receiving denamarin um but seven out of the 25 dogs so over a quarter of them had to stop their chemotherapy protocol because they had such high elevations in their alt that the mm-hmm. hepatopathy was deemed to be significant enough to have to stop the chemotherapy um so actually in that respect especially if we are using those drugs then you know they're really a strong indication for using the denamarin alongside of it and I guess that's probably the best clinical study we really have to hand where we've actually got documentation mm-hmm. of liver enzymes in a slightly more controlled group. I think, as you mentioned yourself before, it's so hard to do a clinical study, mm-hmm. you know, to say how does Denmark directly affect liver enzymes because the liver disease is always mm-hmm. so varied in each individual animal and mm-hmm. what the causes and what the changes are in the first place that it mm-hmm. makes it really hard to then monitor and put changes or no changes and um, attribute them specifically to to one product or ingredient i mean i've got i've got some ideas i don't know if i can share them now but i i but i do i i often think just you know that there are some scenarios where um you know i i wonder with some of the kind of um I, I often wonder with some of the endocrine related hepatopathies where treatment is kind of standardized as far as dogs will get insulin if they're diabetic or dogs will get um uh trilistine if they're got cushings and i wonder if populations like that where there might be some sort of placebo control that we could do where yeah. you know because they're 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 they're, they're getting a more standardized treatment yeah, and i know i suppose it, it depends for how you feel about endocrine related hepatopathies but it was just that just an idea maybe something we can explore in the future okay so. <laughs> anyway okay so any other any other studies of note do you think for for sammy um i mean one that's just nice to highlight i suppose specifically with regards to denimarin is just making sure that whatever sammy product you're using you know is going to meet its label claim there has been mm. a study done by kitster just looking at various mm. different liver supplements and denimarin was the only one that was guaranteed to meet mm. its label claim with other supplements kind of containing variable levels of SAMI yeah. compared to the label. And that's not to say they didn't put the right amounts in the first place. I think it just highlights what a fragile ingredient it is mm-hmm. and kind of how much care is required in mm-hmm. handling of it as an ingredient mm-hmm. to make sure that kind yeah. of what you put in the first place and what you state on the yeah. label will, will be what you're giving to to an animal. Um, and, I, and I think that's one of the first, like, I, I, you know, whenever I do sort of my liver stuff I one of the first things I ask people to do is to go to the pharmacy and pick off the shelf what you've got and and actually look at the label and see you know what you're you do you even know what's in what you have on the shelf you know just yeah. understanding the the components but then that next level as you say that actually it's a it, there's a lot of care involved in actually getting it to the patient that in, in a formulation that's going to be um beneficial so I think in reality always we need we were you know more data always but um I think it's clear that that oxidative injury plays a really important part here um and and I think that SAMI is a really important adjunct treatment for a wide variety of liver disease and to be honest I I'm just struggling to think of one where I wouldn't use it you know I think I think that is the nice thing about it though is kind of there aren't really contraindications whereas when yeah. you don't know your diagnosis of liver disease, there might yeah. be some treatments you would favour or not. That's yeah. at least something that you can kind of start while you're trying to yeah. work out what else is going on in a way. Yeah. I mean, I think the one the one thing I would say, um, I, I don't often reach for it routinely in portosystemic shunts, but then actually if they go on to have more persistent, um, you know, microvascular dysplasia or something, then I often do. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm really not thinking of 
any the other thing we haven't of... really talked about but um that sammy and sullivan both have properties mm. that they support and is um they both act as coloretics yeah, so yeah. um helping i suppose to get if you have got cholestasis just helping to get the vial flowing flowing again yeah um, and actually we'll come on to that because i'm 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 also i i'm also I, I really like the combination of the two um yeah. and in many cases of liver disease and you know i think a lot of people think of the this the the acid as a kind of just for bile stuff or just for gallbladder stuff but i think again it probably has more um more effects so yeah so i think sami um for acute liver but chronic liver disease um cases of intoxication um hepatic lipidosis you know chronic hepatitis so lots and lots of indications just to i just wanted to touch just um we spoke about n-acetylcysteine and uh, just to, to again um you know similar concept here with the replenishment of um uh, intracellular uh glutathione and um cyst um cysteine um and again in that kind of oxidative damage arena um and so really most commonly used in human medicine where people have had a paracetamol uh, toxicity mm-hmm. and certainly um, if it is available to you in your hospital I think it's a, a good initial um, injectable um, option for particularly acute um, intoxication or acute hepatitis cases but again as you mentioned availability is uh, not always mm-hmm. um it's not always available uh, and oral uh, SAMI containing uh, products are, are still an option. Um, Essentially, you're just jumping in one step ahead by giving yeah. us a screen. So SAM, not in a healthy body, methionine would be converted into SAMI, which would then go via cysteine into glutathione. So you're kind of just jumping in one step higher up, I suppose. Um, yeah. One step sorry, further down, closer to the glutathione using your injectable. So that again, I think an option that that is worth um, worth remembering. Um, we also mentioned then um, silymarin, which is the the um, the good old milk thistle, and again, um, similar antioxidant and you know uh, free free radical scavenging uh, effects. As you said, um, that will form an important part of of uh, many supplements, and it is the the other part of. Um, one of the other main parts of obviously of of denimarin. Um, is there any, anything else sort of from a literature point of view um, that is worth kind of noting as uh, regarding silymarin? Um, there has been some studies looking at it again with regards to toxicities. Um, I would say probably literature wise there is greater strength with regards to the SAMI than mm-hmm. the silymarin and the silibin. Um, to be honest, with you, some of it is just showing. Um, physically studies showing that when it's complex it is has improved by availability um, it works again as an antioxidant so it can insert itself into cell membranes and stop kind of the chain reaction of um, mm-hmm. oxidation happening in the cell membrane um, and actually can work synergistically with SAMI as well but there's mm-hmm. I would say that literature wise there's definitely kind of stronger support for the SAMI than, than silibin itself the, the the only um sort of milk thistle related um study that always sticks in my mind is there's this hideous study from the 80s i think it's the 80s where they um gave beagles toxic mushrooms and then gave them that amount of something yeah like that. yeah I can, I can picture that one as well but um, um I can't the exact details of it. so they, they gave they gave them these mushrooms and then the amount a man 
Amana Ninta or whatever they are, the yeah. talk, the Hepatic talks ones, um, and then gave them uh, silamarin or whatever, and and they didn't die as badly. <laughs> I think it was just an awful. Maybe I've selectively forgotten that one. <laughs> just an awful, awful mm. things that we do to dogs. Anyway, good. Okay, so again, in reality, um, this, um, you know, the the combination of Sami um and silamarin, you know, really with um almost all cases of liver disease i think we we can argue that there's a role for for these products to, to play in in management thank you so much to eve and Gemma for chatting today i was thrilled to chat to both of you about very different topics um, but equally interesting and inspiring so thank you both and a massive thank you to the wonderful Protexin for their support of the podcast today we are truly um, grateful to be um, collaborating and working with you you're a lovely bunch so thank you thank you all of you for listening I am truly grateful for that honestly Um, so thank you so much for your support to find out about VTX and more about what we do, then do head over to our website at www.vtx-cpd.com and I look forward to seeing you next time.